podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Welcome to episode 259. Today, we have a special guest, Carrie McCall, the author of Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the Atlantic. But before we begin, a quick word from our sponsor. Please consider becoming a patron of this podcast because every dollar that we receive goes towards the scholarships guide that we publish with over $120 million in scholarships. So every single dollar goes towards that. And also we have some special gifts for you if you do donate. So just giving $1 a month or just a donation of $1 makes a big difference. It also helps us bring this podcast to you. Another announcement, if you're listening to this before December 4th uh, and December 5th of 2020, Sun and Fun's actually going to be having a, fl- a holiday flying festival and car show. You can check it out at Fly flysnf.org. If you're not listening to it before that, please check out flysnf.org because they have so many cool things going on throughout the year. Just a wonderful, wonderful organization. Now entering cruise flight. Again, joining us today is Kerry McCauley, author of Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. In his 30-year career as an international ferry pilot, Kerry has battled fuel system malfunctions over the Atlantic, a total electrical failure at night over the Sahara, being struck by lightning off the coast of Portugal and losing an engine in a thunderstorm. Today, he will share his adventure and give us an inside view into the thrills and challenges of being a ferry pilot over the Atlantic. Welcome to the show, Carrie. It's great to have you. Thanks, Carl. I, uh, I've really, just reading that got me a little bit excited and uh, kind of my adrenaline started pumping. So you must be somebody who really, really loves adrenaline and are a junkie, that's for sure. Yeah, I sure do. Got to keep the heart going. (laughs) So you talk about in this book, single engine over the ocean. Oh boy, really? (laughs) Sure, sure. They got to, they got to get there someplace and they got to find somebody stupid enough to do it. So (laughs) that's me. (laughs) Well, I don't know. It takes a lot of skill to do that. And uh, so a lot of times people ask though, I know we talk about ferrying airplanes because people purchase planes. There's a lot of reasons to do it. I, I'm in a building here where we have a, a ferry company downstairs. Um, I always think of putting a small plane in a container and shipping it would probably be the best way. So so why would you ferry a plane over the water when you could ship it in a container? Well, in a word, money. I mean, it's expensive to take them apart. Shipping is not that expensive. Expensive to put it back together. But, you know, lots of times I've heard lots of stories of people doing that and they get there and there's a couple of vital parts missing from the plane and (laughs) that becomes a problem. So then they would go towards someone like you that can actually uh, has, first of all, the knowledge 
uh, to fly an airplane over the water and also has more than that, has the guts to do it. Uh, I, I'd have to say when you're preparing for this, there's got to be two things involved. I would think there's a psychological aspect and there's also uh, the, the whole part of preparing from a paperwork and, and more of a, a knowledge aspect. So let's, let's talk first about the, the, the knowledge. You know, what type of things do you need to know to do this type of a trip? Well, number one, you got to figure out can the plane make the trip? You know, what route are you going to take? You know, you got to find fuel stops. Um, do you need any overflight permits? Um, are you going to need to put ferry tanks in the plane? I mean, that's kind of the big one. Um, if, if you need to make some really long legs over the ocean, most planes can't do it on their standard fuel. So you got to put ferry tanks in the plane. So ferry tanks, um, like w- what are those? Are they metal? Are they rubber? I prefer to use the metal ones. They do make rubber ferry tanks that collapse as they're being used, but the the metal ones are more reliable. You know, you take the seats out of the back of the out of the back of the plane and put them in the the tail, basically, and then put the ferry tanks as far forward as you can for CG. And there you go, extra so range. When you're but when you do that, that's going to be a, a bit of a, a cost to the person, right? To that's part, I guess, the cost of doing the ferry flight. Yeah, yeah. But usually if you've got ferry tanks in there, a lot of times you can make up the cost for that by skipping stops, especially these days. A lot of times landing permits and especially foreign countries get to be really expensive. But when you have 14 hours of range, you can literally make half the stops that you normally would on a, if you didn't have ferry tanks. So that's kind of nice. So each of those stops, I'm assuming there's some costs involved and, and that type of thing as far as like landing permits? Oh, definitely. Landing permits these days in uh, the foreign countries are getting to be really ridiculous. Plus, these days, almost every foreign airport requires you to have a handler, which is adding extra costs. I mean, back when I first started 30 years ago, we did everything yourself. You'd show up at a foreign airport that you'd never been to, that you don't speak the language. You just have to dive in, find landing fees, get fuel, weather, food if you got time, and do it yourself. Now they make you hire a handler, which is nice, but expensive. So do you really need the handler? No, the handlers really bother me. <laughs> Most of the time, they're not they're not very helpful, first of all. And uh, it's just the money's right off, you know, right off the top. And every dime you spend when you're on the road is coming right out of your pocket. So it's, it's galling to have to shell out a few hundred dollars or more on a stop just to have some guy walk alongside you. Yeah. How did you learn to do all this? Uh, I started back in 1990 for flying for a company called Orient Air out of St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, my friend's father owned the company. We were Army Huey crew chiefs together in the National Guard. And they needed a pilot, and I needed a job. Actually, it was I actually spent a few years trying to get this enough hours to get this job. And got hired, and off on the road I went. So you had some mentors that could help you out. Um, is that something that you would suggest if someone was thinking of get, getting into this, get with somebody first? Oh, definitely. There's so many things that you don't think about when you're getting ready to make, a, especially a long ocean crossing. Um, the, the weather considerations are paramount. I mean, you, if you run into unexpected headwinds and don't leave yourself enough reserve you might come up short, and that's usually considered inconvenient. Coming up short is inconvenient. Also, going to be very cold and wet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Speaking of which, how do you get ready for this psychologically? Because that could happen. I mean, you can get cold and wet and, uh, you know, there's other possibilities too. Oh, definitely. Um, there's used to be an average of three planes went down a year in the North Atlantic with loss of the pilot. Uh, the company I started working for, we lost three pilots over the course of the years. So psychologically, it's it can be tough. Um, I live a lot in denial. <laughs> just, just don't expect it to happen to you. I mean, I started back 30 years ago and we were all young and invincible and you figured, well, it can't happen to me. And after I survived enough close calls, you realized it maybe could happen to you, but I developed enough experience that uh, I hope I'll get out of the situations again. <laughs> you know, I, I think you have to be of a different mindset, I guess, to do this. Uh, I don't think a lot of folks will probably get into this uh, after we talk. But um, how do you, you know, when you're looking at this, how do you prepare like your family and friends for this? I say, hey, I'm, he I'm heading out for a, a cro ocean crossing. Well, my wife's been with me for my entire career. We were dating while I first started flying, and she's just been super solid about the whole thing. It never really seems to bother her very much. She had a lot of confidence in me. We kind of developed a system early on to that I would definitely not call when I got across the ocean because that way she knew I was fine. If she was sitting there waiting for a call, and I forgot, or back in the day, we didn't have cell phones. So you'd have to go to a call center or something. It would drive her nuts. So she figured, I, if I go down, you're gonna, somebody's going to get in touch with you. If you don't hear anything, I'm okay. So, You know, while you're saying that, it's kind of embarrassing because my, my wife always tells me to call when I land. And, uh, and I fly in an airliner, and, which is, you know, a thousand times safer than, than this type of thing. So I, I'm going to actually share that if that's okay with my wife and tell her, hey, I'm not going to call you when I land. How's that sound? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great system. It's worked so good because I forgot to call a number, number of times with uh, made her pretty worried. So I said, let's, let's try this different system. And it's, it's worked good sense. Wow. I, I tell you, I, hats off to you for doing this. It's, it's got to be different, though. I mean, you're sitting in a, in a single-engine airplane, and, you know, you know I've, I've flown in a multi-engine airplane over water, but uh, I'll be honest with you, I always think about the sharks. <laughs> I, I know, it's weird, but is there, are any of those type of things that go through your head? You know, I don't really worry about sharks, but I, I do worry about pretty much everything else. Um, yeah, when you take off from St. John's, Newfoundland, to head out over the North Atlantic, and you see nothing but water, and the the land disappears behind you. You kind of it really sinks in. It you realize that you are you are really out there, and you have to really trust yourself in your navigation because you said thirty years, and some of these crossings, did you do them without GPS? Yeah, I've got eight crossings uh, pre GPS, and so that was that was pretty challenging. It, you know, we we would get a winds law forecast from. Canadian Weather Service before we left and we'd sit down for a good 45 minutes plotting your, you know, with the old E6B, plotting, plotting your route and uh, hoping it worked. You know, we, I spent a lot of time, we used to go down to the Azores quite a bit, the islands off the coast of Portugal. And you got to find them because if you don't, you're, you do not have enough gas to make to Africa. It's just, wow. <laughs> just a fact. And where would you be delivering these airplanes? Uh, Europe, Africa? Yep, Europe, Africa, Middle East, uh, Asia, been everywhere, South America a lot. 
So what kind of adventures have you had? I mean, tell us a little bit about some of the more challenging flights that you had and and how you kind of work through those, because that's really a big part of this book. Well, yeah, there's that's one of the things that I think I excel at, um, especially over the years, is dealing with unusual problems. Like I lost my alternator at night over the Sahara and was forced to buy f- fly by flashlight for eight hours in IMC conditions without a GPS. That was... Uh, that was relatively challenging, and I was flying over Saudi Arabia one evening in a Navajo and lost a vacuum pump. Not a big deal. You know, you're in a Navajo. You have two engines, two vacuum pumps, piece of cake, Tell the second vacuum pump went. So then I was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, what are the odds? So then I was uh, back to the good old needle ball airspeed, and, and I was actually doing pretty good that night, having kind of enjoying it. It was challenging, but I was doing okay, and until I noticed that my oil temp was rising and my oil pressure was dropping, and I looked out and it was the left, the right engine was completely covered in oil, so I had to shut that down. So it was kind of like being in a simulator where they keep throwing things at you. <laughs> Probably the most unusual was uh, I lost my uh, ferry system at night over the Atlantic. I was uh, flying a Bonanza from St. John's, Newfoundland to direct to Paris. You normally can't make that route because it's too long, but I had really strong headwinds up above 15,000, so I was cruising along. And when I went to move the fuel from the ferry tank to the wing tank so I could use it, I found out that the ferry system wasn't working. And the ferry, those ferry tanks are pressurized by a ram air tube on the outside of the plane, and that pressurizes the plane, which or the, the ferry tank, which forces the fuel from the tank to the wings. So I uh, uncoupled the hose and found out that for some reason I wasn't getting any airflow and thought about it for a couple minutes and decided to try to pressurize the tank with my mouth, blowing in the tube. And it worked, but really slow. And so I spent about eight and a half hours continuously breathing into that tank at 15,000 feet with no oxygen, breathing gas fumes with no sleep for two days. Wow. <laughs> so that was exciting. And if you didn't do that, what were your options? I really didn't have any options. Um, I was, by the time I found out the ferry system wasn't working, I was past the point of no return. I definitely couldn't make it back to Canada. And the British Isles, you know, Ireland and Southern England was wiped out by uh, fog. So everything was closed down there. So I pretty much had to make mainland Europe. And that was it. And the thing I was most scared of was passing out and falling asleep and running the tank dry because I don't think I could have got the engine running again before I hit the wa- hit the water. And I think I did fall asleep a couple times, passed out essentially, but I was able to wake myself up in time to keep things going. Wow. How do you get, uh, how do you stay awake? You have coffee, caffeine pills. How do you do that? Uh, I used to drink a lot of, Diet sodas, um, <laughs> a lot, a lot of diet sodas and a lot of snacks. Of course, when you uh, drink a lot of sodas in a small airplane for 10, 14 hours, you eventually going to have to do your business. <laughs> yeah, we, it, uh, since it's a family-friendly show, we won't talk too much about that, but I'm assuming you, the old pilot relief tube is what we're t- discussing here. <laughs> well, I kind of used, I got, I uh, developed the, uh, the double Ziploc baggie method. 
Ah, that's, so that, that's another good method. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Work the best so I don't have to carry a jug of not uh, apple juice into the airport <laughs> at the end of a flight. That's pretty embarrassing. You know, I, I tell you, though, one of the things that I think is is amazing is the stamina of you guys as far as ferry pilot. Um just preparing, I said psychologically and also the knowledge, but there's got to be a physical preparation before you jump in a single engine airplane and fly over this huge body of water. Oh, definitely. Um, you, you really, it really helps to stay in shape um, and get a lot of rest beforehand because when you're ferrying an airplane, especially eastbound, you have some really long days. You know, eastbound, you're, you're going against the time zone, so you're continuously losing time. So a typical day, you're waking up really early take off before dawn because you're going to be by the time you get to your destination it's going to be usually well well after dark or well after midnight sometimes and it's an, an entire day of sitting in the cockpit and do that for three four six days in a row it really wears on you mornings yeah. are the worst <laughs> mornings are yeah um taking off into that rising sun and uh, uh, you know first couple hours you haven't got much sleep and it's just the plane starts droning i became a uh, really good at tiny micro naps little two three minute naps and uh, recharge the batteries yeah i have to admit it's usually at, at when the sun comes up when i get really really tired when i'm flying all night long uh you know when you're over the ocean like that how do you mitigate some of those risks i mean um, I know there's lots of things you can go through in your head, but how do you try to mitigate that? And also, do you think that certain training in your background helped you to think outside the box to come up with some of the solutions like you you discussed? Well, definitely. Um, I've always been kind of a, I don't know if you want to call it loner, but I like to operate independently. And, you know, when you're out over the ocean, you're going to have to deal with whatever comes up by yourself you know there's no one there's no time out you can't stop and you know have have a mechanic look at whatever little problem that you have um you got to be ready to deal with it yourself you know i carry tools with me um i've worked on a few few problems in flight um i'm really into uh my survival gear you know when you're ferrying a plane to the other side of the other side of the world you might have to be ready for every to survive in every environment you got northern canadian wilderness you got to cross the greenland ice cap so you got arctic you've got the north atlantic to survive in get down you've got a desert survival as you cross the middle east and jungle survival once you get into uh asia or africa so you have to be ready for everything throughout this journey though are you in communication with anybody? I mean, is there a way that people can find you and how would they? Well, back in the old days, we, you know, we'd always put an HF radio in the plane and we still do, um, which is kind of like a ham radio because you're definitely, when you're out of the, over the ocean, you're out of normal VHF range and you'd have to make your day, hourly or whatever your time it is, position, position reports, which I always find kind of disingenuous pre GPS because you're basing it on absolutely nothing. <laughs> just my flight plan. You could have just read that. But um, before we used to just carry along a, uh, a normal uh, ELT that would just take out of a plane, which were usually pretty bulky and relatively unreliable. Now I carry an EPIRB, this nice small EPIRB that I have on me. You know, we always wear, especially in the single engine, you always wear a survival suit because if you don't have that and you get out of, 
you know, if you go down, you're, you need that to survive and a raft and pretty much anything that you don't have on your person, you're not going to have. I mean, I carry a, a ditch bag that I hopefully hope can bring with me if I ditch, but everything that's really important is zipped inside my f- survival suit. And, uh, and of course got to have the raft. <laughs> so that survival suit, is that, that, that big orange thing that they wear? Yep. The big Gumby suit, big neoprene Gumby suit. Um, I, I always prefer the ones that's completely one piece and has only one hole for the face, the one opening and a big waterproof zipper. Some of them are just have the cuffs for your ankles and heel and, uh, wrists. And I don't think that's very good. I did talk to a guy who went down North Atlantic with one of those and he was just about froze to death before they got him. And he says that would, that, that suit was junk. So I like the neoprene ones. Wow. If you did go down, how long do you think it would take for people to come get you? A long time. I mean, once you're out of helicopter range, which is not very far offshore, the only thing that can come get you is a boat and boats are slow. You know, you might, you, you could definitely be in the water for 24 hours. So I know people that uh, fly, uh, this is short, isn't like over into the Bahamas, stuff like that, single engine. They always look for the boats down below them. Is that something that you kind of tune into is, is the lights on the water? Oh, definitely. If I ever see a ship um, while I'm on a road, um, I'll note its position either with the GPS or the old maps because I, I usually try to fly as high as I can when I'm crossing the ocean, fifteen to 18,000 feet. That gives you a long time, you know, gives you good radio reception, gives you a long time to deal with problems before you hit the water. Or you can glide quite a ways, you know, toward maybe a boat if you lose an engine. So, yeah, Do you communicate with them? No, I haven't figured out a way to communicate with the ships. They use a different frequency than 125. Um, they've got different stuff. But uh, I think if they saw me splash down in front of them, they might get the hint. <laughs> of course, I always look for cruise ships because, you know, if you land in front of a cruise ship, it could be uh, drinking a margarita in a hot tub in short order, and that wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> That's for sure. Although I make light of it. Boy, I tell you, it's it sounds pretty scary to me. I'm not so sure that ferry flying's in my future. <laughs> that's okay. You can leave it to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's why they hire folks like you as far as, um, flying over the water. And we'll talk a, a few of your other adventures besides flying over the water. Cause you've had a few. Um, what do you do? What do you fly when you're, when you're over land, uh, when you're back home? Well, I, uh, my personal plane is a beach queen air, 1960 queen air, which I absolutely love. Uh, my other day job is I run a skydiving school in Wisconsin, Skydive Twin Cities, and I fly a Grand Caravan with the 900 horse Garrett on it. That's a lot of fun. And I fly uh, Citation 650s for charter, do, do some of that too. So a lot of stuff. So you're, yeah, it's a well-rounded, but then do you actually jump out of the planes? Oh, yeah. I jump yeah. all with, mostly I jump at the school. I have uh, just over 20,000 jumps now and jump pretty much <laughs> i jump a lot so you do obviously an adrenaline junkie that's for sure but um you know going back to some of these adventures i think in your book you talked about uh and i don't know how you word it uh as far as 
getting involved and having to smuggle drugs. I mean, what, <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about that. They weren't drugs. <laughs> it's airplane parts. Okay, airplane parts. Airplane parts. That, that's not right. Smuggling, not drugs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, but when I was flying for Orient Air, the the owner of the company, I would always pack the plane full of um, spares for the airplane, as it were. To uh, he had a little export business with a couple of clients overseas, and so we. Uh, we, we didn't always pay all the customs that was due. At least that's what I've been told is a theory. You know, you can't prove anything. There's no video. Right. <laughs> so have you ever had a run-ins with any of these nefarious individuals when you landed at some of these airports? Um, you mean as far as wanting to get me to do something I really shouldn't do? Yeah. I, I was asked a couple times. Um, it actually would be super easy to smuggle drugs as a ferry pilot, especially in the ferry tanks. They're big welded metal tanks with baffles in them. You could literally put anything in there and customs guys never give you a second look. They want to hear about how stupid you are to fly a plane over the ocean. They don't, they don't tear apart the airplane. <laughs> it also yeah. smells in there too after a few days. So <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, not that we're giving anybody ideas, but it's kind of no. it, it's interesting to to hear from somebody who's actually done this and um, and realizing too that this is a a lot more difficult than than I think people realize. We all think about just the flying over the water, how scary that is. But you know, people do that all the time. They mitigate that risk. But when you're hours out, I mean, there's a lot that goes into this. That's for sure. But another kind of a neat adventure that you did, and I saw the video online, by the way. I can't remember where it was, but uh, there's an airport that you have to go over the this hill and down. I think it's St. Bart's, right? Yep. And I, I think you actually landed there. I think it was in a, a debonair, or I can't remember what kind of airplane. So tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, the St. Bart's airport. Uh, I was lucky enough to get checked out at that airport. That was very challenging, a lot of fun. Uh, I did it in a... 836 bonanza you to be allowed to land there you need to go checked out with a pilot and it's challenging it's a short runway and it's down sloping and if you don't just barely clear the spectators on the road at the end of the runway and then hug the ground as you come down you're going to overshoot because if you come in a little just a little high or a little fast you're never going to get stopped in time it's one of the, the, the runways just covered with skid marks. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's the one you see the videos of them kind of sliding off the end of the runway into the water. Yep. That's <laughs> the one. And that's – so you'd have to get checked out. So that's not something you just could fly into on your own. So no. I it, that I mean, I think that's the neatest approach. And it's so much fun to watch those online. Um, but tell us a little bit about uh, some of the – like one other adventure, and then we'll kind of go into some of the what's coming up in the future and a little bit more about the book. But uh, expand on maybe another flying adventure you had, uh, which uh, maybe outside of, of, uh, of just the Atlantic Ocean, you know, some other things that happened possibly when you landed on, on the other side or before you took off. Uh, well, I – had to land in uh, Zurich one time with uh, with a client in his air in his Aerostar, which is a, a really neat airplane, the fastest piston twin ever built. And I, we were uh, we had run into headwinds, and I wasn't really prepared to go into Zurich, and I didn't have the proper uh, maps and approach plates because back then it you know it was all paper stuff. So I kind of got got a little yelled at there as I tried to file a flight plan out of there, but. Uh, 
when we left, I had to, we were going to the Mediterranean, going to Cyprus and climbing out, we uh, encountered some icing and it wasn't too bad. And I wasn't super worried. It was a known icing airplane. I had, you know, boots and hot props and windshield. And I think everything was real nice. I had to get up to 19,000 feet to cross the Alps and something on the tail wasn't working really good. And it got kind of slow and kind of sloppy and it was it was a little touch and go there at the very at the very top at 19,000 feet we were we were we were pushing a little bit i kind of shouldn't have done that <laughs> yeah i'm sure there's a few of those kind of shouldn't have done it moments <laughs> yeah yeah a little bit i've i've got a i've got a condition called can't say no itis and uh, <laughs> i'll pretty much do just about everything so you're still actively doing this? Uh, not so much anymore. I'll do probably about two trips a year. If I if somebody has a plane that I really want to fly that's really cool or it's going to a destination that I really want to go to, I'll do it. Um, I kind of keep my hand in it because, dang, I just love the adventure. There's There's literally nothing like hopping in a strange airplane and flying it to the other side of the planet. You don't know exactly how it's going to go, what day you're going to be where. You you know you're, there's going to be challenges along the way, and you're going to have to deal with them. And I I just love that. I just can't wait to get out on the road and run into problems. That's what I live for. How about the coolest plane you've flown? Boy, the Aerostar was the most fun. Um, I love the Beaver. Love the Twin Otter. Um I think the Beaver was cool. The Beaver is just, it's the Harley of airplanes. You know, it starts up with a backfire and a cloud of smoke and it rattles and rumbles. And it's just, it's just cool. Yeah. You hear that from, from quite a few different people as far as the Beaver is concerned. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, and, and a wonderful plane to fly too. Uh, one, I really, one of the things that I was thinking of when you're saying all these different airplanes, when you do come across a plane you've never flown, I mean, what do you do? I mean, how do you get, get ready for that flight? Well, basically, you sit down with the pilot's operating handbook and figure out how to get started because <laughs> you almost never get, a, never get a checkout because once the plane is sold, the, the seller, he doesn't want to touch it again because nothing good could happen. If you break right. it, the sale's off. And the, the new owner is on the other side of the planet. So... Just uh, I get in there, I figure out literally how to start it, um, write down a few of the critical speeds, emergency procedures, anything I think I need, and then figure it out on the road. Wow. Uh, it's not kind of like a rental checkout, is it? You're doing it solo. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so what's next in your life? What's the next big adventure for you? Well, I'm trying to get a trip together to fly my Queen Air to Antarctica. That's that's a trip I want to take. Go from the United States down to the Bahamas, down the east coast of South America, touch Antarctica, and then come back up the west coast of South America, up Central America, and back home. That that sounds like fun. 
That sounds like a blast. So I guess you try to get down. Well, that wouldn't be McMurdo. Where where would that be? I guess down there. That that'd be a neat trip to to plan out. Uh, it's uh, it's cold down there. That's for sure. My <laughs> my wife was actually stationed in Antarctica, and uh, you know flew down in those little suits like you were talking about those orange suits. But uh, they had big airplanes, big engines, and it was it was a bit of a different adventure than flying in a small plane. So uh, I I'd love to hear more about that. I'd love to see more, and uh, hopefully you have some videos on that um also as far as your book is concerned tell us a little bit more about some of the things that they'll find when someone's reading this book and also obviously where they can find the book uh you know the different chapters different adventures they're gonna they're gonna see or read about that we haven't talked about well there's a whole bunch in that book um you know i don't spend a whole lot of time like a lot of memoirs talking about my childhood and stuff like that it pretty much gets right into flying skydivers and some of the rattle traps and problems I ran into there. And, uh, you know, just, and the fairy flying, the, the stories I had, I, I had to cut the book in half cause I just had way too many stories. You know, um, I got to buzz the pyramids with the, the owner Anwar Sadat's son. That was kind of, a, kind of exciting. Uh, robbed a bank in Spain. We'll let the readers find out about the details of that one. <laughs> <laughs> got struck by lightning uh, over over the ocean off the coast of Portugal. Um, lost over Africa because the warlords had taken the gas for the VORs. Thunderstorms, sandstorms. Um, I was just lucky enough or unlucky enough to have an amazing series of adventures over the course of my career and survive them. So they'll be they'll be entertained. Oh, we're glad you did survive, and I love some of the stories that are in the book. I haven't read it all yet, but I, I can't wait to to read the rest of it. Uh, we're going to have some links in the show notes, by the way. It's available on Amazon. Is there any other place that you want people to go to find that book? Yeah, you can get it easiest with Amazon. If they want a signed copy, they can get a hold of me on uh, com, and I can sign one for them and send it out. Um, that's pretty much the easiest way to get it right now. All right, we'll have all those in the show notes below. Also, I have a link, too, to a pretty cool little video where you were interviewed and actually were part of a series. And I think it was kind of cool. I can't remember the name of the series, like Dangerous Flights or something like that. Yep, that Dangerous cool? Flights. On and that Discovery was one of the Channel. Discovery Channel. That's right. And it was uh, really uh, fascinating uh, to to watch that video because I loved how they went through all the different things that you do from skydiving, flying, et cetera. And, uh, and I actually, my, my heart got pumping when I started watching that. Uh, you definitely are, are an adrenaline junkie and we do appreciate your coming here. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I'd like to know though, is as far as like right now or in a period where there's this pandemic, this COVID, uh, that type of thing. I, a, any advice for those that are, you know, looking ab- about towards getting into aviation, maybe they're not flying yet or looking for that next adventure during these trying times. Well, yeah, you just gotta, you gotta have hope and you gotta keep going. I mean, we'll all get through this and you know, you gotta get some adventure in your life and aviation's the way to get it. In my opinion, I either through, Flying airplanes or jumping out of them or both. <laughs> well said, Carrie, and I appreciate your coming in here. It's been been wonderful having you on. We, we'd love to have you back on to talk a little bit more about, about your next book, where the other half of the adventures will be in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd love to talk about with you, Carl. <laughs> Take care now, Carrie. And uh, we've been talking with uh, Carrie McCauley, 
author of Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. I really recommend you're checking this book out. You can get it on Amazon. It's Kindle version. You can get the signed copy by going to his website. We'll have all those links in the show notes down below. One thing I do want to do is is encourage you, just like Carrie has done, and look toward your next adventure in flying. Don't When you're done listening to this, don't stop there. Go out and think about the next adventure. It might be reading this book and living vicariously through Carrie, or it might be you getting involved in a new airplane, a new rating, or maybe possibly jumping out of an airplane. Well, folks, we'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.